Hello and welcome to this week's Haiku P podcast. I'm Patricia, the host of the podcast, and today I'd like to bring you some haibun. If you're not familiar with this form of writing, do go and have a listen to episode 19 of this series. It's a podcast with Sean O'Connor, an expert on the form and an editor of the Haibun Journal. The link will be in the show notes. The Haibun we'll hear today have been published in the first and second Poetry P Journal in 2022. Both are available through the website if you'd like to go and have a read. These Haibun have been nominated by myself and M. Shane Pruitt, Poetry P's Haibun editor, for the Haiku Foundation's Touchstone Award for Haibun. I'm really happy to be joined by Wendy Ghent, Norman Silver, Reed Hepworth and Lorraine A. Padden to read their work. Sadly, John Green couldn't be with us, so I'll read his and keep my fingers crossed that my reading meets with his approval. I hope you enjoy this podcast and I hope you agree with our nominations. Do let me know. So, Wendy, welcome to Pete Towers and congrats on your nomination for the Touchstone Hyburn Awards. You, you, you really had, uh, you had serious competition from our lovely community. It was quite difficult to single them all out. So well done. I thought we'd start by finding out a little bit more about your Japanese short form history. I think you started writing haiku having read Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me. Uh, which I, th- I don't think I've read it, but I think the premise of it is, or one of the, the ideas within the book is that the artificial intelligence robot starts writing haiku to the human he loves. Yeah, that's right. And I came across this book um, by chance in a, a swap box. It was in a, in a phone box that had been converted to a, a book swap box. And um, I just picked it out because it sort of looked like my type of book. And um, yes, it was about this android uh, that was writing haiku, which I'd never actually heard of at all. So I sort of Googled it to see, well, what's this haiku? And that's that's how it started. Wendy, I am now going to have to go and find the book. I think what I'd like you to do is read your lovely haiku for us, and then we'll have a bit more of a chat if that's okay. Okay, here goes. Time will tell. He says he's from the future but he's not sure which one. Nothing is certain, he says, not even the past. I stare at his wristwatch. It looks vintage, like the one my father wore. But what does it mean? Reflected in his eyes, a field of lavender. Thank you very much. I found this a magnificently ambiguous piece of work, and I thought at first it was about his dementia. But then there's the the sentence that goes, I stare at his wristwatch. It looks vintage like the one my father wore, but what does it mean? I thought, okay, my first conclusion is completely wrong, I think. So tell me, because I love to know the story behind the story. Can you explain about the high one, please? Yes. Well, this originally came about um, following a a challenge that was put out on Twitter, actually, by um, Pippa Phillips. And I didn't know much about Highburn really. And I have to say, this was the first one I'd ever written. But um, she put out a challenge and the theme was from the future. So I thought I'd have a go at it. And as you know, on Twitter, there's very little space. So it's quite a challenge to try and 
writer Highburn within the space on Twitter, especially as I've I've understand you know it needs a title, and obviously the verse. Um, so the theme from the future to me, I I just thought of science fiction of the time travel, and that's basically where it came from, where the idea came from, but also alludes to the present. That was my next guess: the time travel element. It's a nice sci-fi highball. That was crazy. Yeah. Thank you. I do love a story. So, did you manage to get it all in? Because I think you can have two. Was it two hundred and eighty? I did. Just, did you? Because you have to put the hashtag as well. And so, with the hashtag as well, I literally went down to the very last character. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to sort of use the reply button or anything like that to put a bit more on. I wanted to get it all on the one <laughs> post. <laughs> Maybe there's a lesson in that for all of us that when we really have to condense and think about every word we use, yeah. it's it's so much better. Oh, what a great idea! Yeah. I shall I shall have to tell Pippa that her challenge generated one of our awards. Do you remember what this hashtag? What Pippa's hashtag? Or um, um... it's hash high bunny, H <laughs> A I B U double N Y. Okay. <laughs> So people can go along and have a look for that as well and, and maybe get, yeah. get involved too. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. I just loved the one-liner reflected in his eyes, a field of lavender. Just yeah. a beautiful, beautiful image. Thank you. Oh, thank that. you. So, Wendy, we established why you took up haiku. Yeah. And now we know you've taken up, or rather, maybe you can confirm, taking up hybrid comes from Pippa's Twisted Challenge. Yeah. Have have you continued with it? Not really. I've I've written sort of one or I'm having a go at one, but um because I'm pretty new to this form of work, I only started what well, it'd be two years in January. I've sort of moved into tanker and I I most mostly write tanker. And um so I'm sort of really trying to consolidate that and improve my tanker. But I would like to move on to it to Highburn. Well, we've had a workshop recently from Sean O'Connor and we've got a little bit more from him to come. And of course, we'll be doing some more Highburn next year. So you've got time to put another one or two together for a submission in the new year. Right. And what came first with you? Did did you write the the wonderful little verse about the lavender fields or did the prose come first? No, I wrote the prose first. Okay. And then I think it was the verse, which was something I'd been sort of working on as a three-line verse, but didn't really have the ending of it. And again, it, it came out as a monocou because it was less space, but actually I think it worked better. It, it happened to work better. Yeah, the title sort of came last. We're hearing from a lot of Highburn writers in this episode and uh, everyone's got their own little way of doing it, which I suppose is quite natural because we're all individuals at the end of the day. Yeah. So, Wendy... Could you give us one last read of Time Will Tell, please? Yeah. Time Will Tell. He says he's from the future, but he's not sure which one. Nothing is certain, he says, not even the past. I stare at his wristwatch. It looks vintage, like the one my father wore. But what does it mean? Reflected in his eyes, a field of lavender beautiful thank you wendy we've sent your highborn off into the touchstone world let's see what happens now all fingers and toes crossed for you thank you thank you very much 
Now I'm delighted to read you our next nomination for the Touchstone Highburn Awards. It's by John S. Green, but unfortunately, because he's at the Seebeck conference when I'm recording, he wasn't able to make it. John, I hope you had a lovely time. I hope everybody enjoyed Seebeck. And who knows, maybe I'll get there one day too. So I'm reading John's Highburn for him. I hope I can do it justice, John. Here goes. In an instant. Every Saturday the farmer's market comes to town. The local farms are wonderful. Our favourite is Rabbit Fields. Rosalyn, a bubbly personality in colourful clothes and braided pigtails, runs the entire stand. Regulars wait patiently in line for her pristine organic produce. She's the number one vendor. No prices on anything. No haggling. When it's my turn, I say, leeks, cabbage, carrots, yellow potatoes, that's all. As she packs the goods, I ask, how's Jennifer? Her aunt is a poetry friend of mine. Rosalyn pauses from her bustle and thoughtfully says, I haven't spoken with her in a while, but she would love to hear from you. Don't tell her I said so, but she would really appreciate it. Cloudburst. Even the swing set drips rain. As with the other nominations, the haiku at the end really stands out for me. Just going to prove how important that element of a haibun is. Shall we hear it all again? In an instant, every Saturday the farmer's market comes to town. The local farms are wonderful. Our favourite is rabbit fields. Rosalyn, a bubbly personality in colourful clothes and braided pigtails, runs the entire stand. Regulars wait patiently in line for her pristine organic produce. She's the number one vendor. No prices on anything. No haggling. When it's my turn, I say, leeks, cabbage, carrots, yellow potatoes, that's all. As she packs the goods, I ask, how's Jennifer? Her aunt is a poetry friend of mine. Rosalind pauses from her bustle and thoughtfully says, I haven't spoken with her in a while, but she would love to hear from you. Don't tell her I said so, but she would really appreciate it. Cloudburst. Even the swing set drips rain. John S. Green. Thanks, John. I'm delighted to welcome Norman Silver to the podcast. I think for the first time, Norman, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it was a, it's a pleasure. And it was a pleasure to read your highborn. Shane and I have nominated Peep Toe Shoes to the Touchstone Award Committee. And it would be lovely, Norman, if you could just read it for us, please. Peep Toe Shoes, 1953. My dad is manager of a large department store in the center of Cape Town. Even though he tells my mom she's gorgeous, he is reluctant to let her accompany him 
to social occasions with the directors. Discarded wings, termites in the roof timbers. That's beautiful, Norman. And the haiku in combination with the prose broke my heart. That haiku was so emotional for me. I wondered, is it, if I may ask you, is it a true story? It's definitely based on uh, on truth and <laughs> what happened at that time. My dad was, in fact, a manager of a department store. He always had this thing about my mum not being educated enough to mix with directors. And also, he was a very possessive man, and she was quite attractive. So that's where that part came from. The termites, um, my parents bought a new house in it was called Bishop's Court or Newlands in Cape Town. And uh, it was a brand new build. But after a few years, my dad discovered termites in the, in the roof timbers. It had to all be redone. So I guess the two things came together. Obviously, the discarded wings. I, I always felt that was my mother's lot in life. The other side of it, of course, is that I think my dad was reluctant to attend with the directors himself. He gave up this kind of work. When we moved up to Johannesburg, he had one more job as a manager, and then he decided to just run a very simple grocery store where he wouldn't have bosses. I found that haiku just beautiful, but I know you had had a career as a novelist. How long have you been writing haiku? I think this is probably my fourth year. Wow. I know your other work too, so I, d I know how good your haiku are. But given your career as a novelist, I wondered which comes first for you, the haiku or the prose in a haibun? I think I would say the story comes first. In, in my head, having something to, to talk about, something to tell, then generally the haibun does get written first. I've heard others say the haiku should come first, but for me, it's the, the prose and then the, the haiku. Given your career as a novelist, do you have any advice to people about the prose element? It's very different to novel writing. I'm not sure I'm tapping into quite the same place with that. But with the storytelling, I feel that is the years of novel writing. I recognize the feeling when I'm doing a haiku. So I think for me, it's having something to say and then writing it simply. And I do spend a long time getting the, the prose just right. This, this particular one went through quite a few different versions of it. This is the shortest version of it that I managed. The, the very strong feeling I had while writing it was how this was a almost a foretaste of what their life together would be, even though I was only seven at the time. Oh. I was very aware of tensions in their relationship. I, I had been for many years. I always had a hope that it would be great because when they were, you know, in, a, in good moods, they were wonderful together. Mm -hmm. I always wondered how damaging all this would be. Should one ask, did they stay together long term? 
They did stay. Oh. I do remember them packing suitcases a few times <laughs> as if they were going to leave, but they, they never did. I, I left South Africa just when it was getting really heavy, I suppose. And uh, when they used to come visit here, they were on their best behavior, but <laughs> it still it often didn't go that well. Deep toe shoes. 1953. My dad is manager of a large department store in the center of Cape Town. Even though he tells my mom she's gorgeous, he is reluctant to let her accompany him to social occasions with the directors. Discarded wings, termites in the roof timbers. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for coming along and reading it for us today and giving us a little bit of advice from an expert. Cheers, Norman. Thank you. (laughs) Reid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure and congratulations on your nomination for the Touchstone Highburn Awards, which of course uh, came from Poetry P. Shane and myself nominated you. We're very proud to have done so. And we've invited you here to read it for us. So could you read your Highburn for us, please? You, you bet. I would be so happy to. Funny Bone. The night Grandpa invented a loudspeaker for his television set. We watch Monty Python's Flying Circus at a decibel guaranteed to damage eardrums. Crack of dawn. The quail perfects its silly walk. That's brilliant. I just love that. And every time I read it, I can hear the music to Monty Python in in my head. But I understand this is your first high boon read. Yeah, it, it was my first one. You know, I, I've only been writing for about a year. I've only been writing Hyben for like less than six months, I think, about six months. And um, I thought I would just try it out. And, uh, you know, from the things that I was reading that other people were writing about Hyben, I thought it would be nice to focus on fa- doing something about a family-related um, memory. So my grandfather was a fairly influential person in my life. He was a bit of a character, quite stern at times, um, but he had a twinkle in his eye as well. He loved to recite limericks to my brother and I um, at the at the dining table, which was <laughs> quite exciting. But he was a he was a scientific instrument maker uh, by trade, and so he was surrounded by very loud machinery his entire life. He trained in in England, and when he came to Canada, he started his own business, and so he was surrounded from a very young age, probably from the time he was 14 or 15, and he, and he worked until he was 81. So uh, his hearing was deeply impacted by this, and uh, he was always trying to invent new technology for things, and one of them was increasing the volume on the TV set because his hearing aids just didn't do it for him. So this is based on something that actually happened. He had a a debut uh, of his uh, new speaker system for us uh, one evening, um, and he loved watching Monty Python. So we got to hear it (laughs) at uh, very, very high volume. Um, And I remember it very distinctly because it was summertime. The windows were all open, but they were shaking. It was so loud in the living room. It was shaking that neighbors actually came over to inquire what was going on. That's where this came from. Uh, just a nice memory of of him doing something funky. It's a really impactful 
short piece of prose and a wonderful haiku senryu to go with it. I, I love that too. And it, as I said to you, it brings back wonderful memories for me as well with the, the oh. Monty Python. So tell us, have you continued to write them after this one? Yeah, I have actually. And um, Hyben has now become my favorite medium, basically. You know, I started when I started writing a year ago, it was only haiku. And I and I saw in some of the journals, people were posting Hyben. And I thought, oh, what's that? <laughs> I, I was just like immediately offended thinking, why would you combine like prose with 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 a haiku? It just seems so wrong. Um, but then I started reading them and I was really um, touched by a lot of them. I love prose. I used to write short stories. So prose is something that feels natural to me mm-hmm. and is actually a quite easy for me, if I can say that. I don't know. Um, haiku and senaru were much harder. And haiben in itself is challenging um, because of the three elements that you kind of have to like fit, make them fit to work, right? So mm-hmm. haiben is challenging, but I absolutely absolutely adore it and so yeah I I feel that that's sort of my my thing now I'm not writing as much just individual haiku or senaru now it's mostly haiben and I just feel like I'm almost 60 I I have a lot of stories you know (laughs) I'm I'm a storyteller at heart I think so it just feels like a natural thing for me to be doing and getting getting some stuff out and uh, releasing some stuff it can be quite cathartic and yeah, it's nice to share. This one really means a lot to me because it was my first one and and because he was my grandpa. Well, I'm very pleased That's that we, we nominated it in that case. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'm so touched by that. Thank you. So it sounds like you've sort of taken to this process like a duck to water, really. But why? I'm interested now, intrigued. You said you hadn't really been writing for long, This, this sort of the haiku side of things about a year you said Mm -hmm. uh what brought you to haiku um you know I'm not even 100% sure like last September I was out for a walk with my partner and we were in the forest we you know we lived in in nature and um surrounded by nature and like I used to write um never poetry I never would have even attempted poetry I don't think I I don't feel like I have a poet's ability, you know, like for someone who writes free verse, I couldn't do that to save my life. But I was walking and I just got touched by something. And and I remember saying to my partner, it's 575, right? Like it's you do 575. And so I wrote I wrote what I thought was a was a haiku, um, because it fit all the parameters of 575. And then I started reading about it. Uh, Mm. After after I had written it, I started reading and I realized that, well, Hmm. I'm not catching any of the things that you're supposed to catch there. And so that got my mind going about it. I like I really got pulled in. And, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, you had asked about my ukulele playing. My ukulele playing has really taken a backseat in this past year. I, I love my ukulele. I, I, I love playing music. It, uh, you know, it brings me such joy. But there's something about writing that touches me in, in such a deep innate way that I can't stop, you know, and I, so now I have to make time for myself to, to do other things. So that's kind of like what started for me, I think. Not everybody knows about your ukulele playing, so we should tell people that oh, they, right. they, they could find you on YouTube. They, they could, but they might want to just bypass that. So uh, 
I just play for fun. But yeah, I, I've been playing uh, ukulele for about four years now, I think. And I play mostly classical ukulele, probably because guitar is too big and, and uh, seems very complex with those extra two strings. So ukulele was a good fit for me. I'm small. It's small. It works. <laughs> Just like haiku. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I think they should. I think people should go and search search you out because I did, and it, it, it's it's worth oh. doing. I loved it. Oh. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Reed, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we go, would you read Funny Bone for us again, please? You bet. My pleasure. Funny Bone. The night Grandpa invented a loudspeaker for his television set. We watch Monty Python's flying uh, circus at a decibel guaranteed to damage eardrums. Crack of dawn. The quail perfects its silly walk. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you thank so you. much for giving us our your time and, and coming along today, because I know the time difference means that we're at very different parts of our day. Thank you, Reed. Thank you. This is the final one of our Touchstone nominated haiku. I'd like to welcome Lorraine A. Padden to the podcast. Now, Lorraine has been on the podcast before as a community judge for our haiku selections, but she's not as yet read her work to us. That changes today, and I'm happy to say we'll continue into next year, as she'll be along to read from her recently published work, Upwelling, details in the show notes. Now, Lorraine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. <laughs> It's lovely to have you back. I know it's very early where you are, so I'm very sorry about getting you up early on a weekend. Are you all right? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, I tend to be an early riser, so this is actually perfect for me. Lorraine, we have a lot to talk about, but let's kick off, please, with a reading of your haibun. Oh, thank you. The title is Complicit. The action shot taken in the studio opens an article about a female choreographer working on her next debut. Halfway through the piece, it's revealed that she's had multiple reconstruction surgeries. I immediately look back at the photo. Double take. Seeing no evidence, it made me wonder whether I'd be so eager to check her appearance had the woman survived a brain tumor. One breast. This is how I participate in my own gender surveillance. Does it show? After another. Thanks, Lorraine. Now, this Highburn was in the second Poetry P Journal this year, available, of course, through the website. And I'd urge you to go and have a look at it because the format is quite interesting. But how would you describe it? What would you say about it? I, well, I chose to break the haiku into three separate lines and insert the prose sentences around them, rather than present just a paragraph of prose and then perhaps the whole haiku, or start the piece with a haiku and then one contiguous set of sentences of, of prose. So this is a, a braided or a woven technique. I use it sometimes when I write. In this particular instance, I wanted to slow the reader down, getting through the piece. And when it appears on the page, the single lines and the words of the very brief haiku, I mean, that the haiku by itself is double take, one breast after another. 
I mean, it, it could be a one liner, but I decided to do it in three lines to sort of intersperse it in the prose to really slow the reader down and give the words more of a chance to have their own weight and settle. Uh, hopefully by the end of the piece, the, the, the theme uh, be, becomes a little more resonant because of the way that the haiku interacts with the prose. What interests me, of course, as a spoken word podcast is how you hear it. Perhaps at the end, you might read it slightly different, differently for us and we can judge how it comes across in spoken form as opposed okay. to on the page. Yes, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Wonderful. I do have a few more questions before we get to a second reading, though. And I wanted to ask you, did you answer your own question? Would you have been so eager to check her appearance if she'd had a brain tumour? No. Really? No, absolutely not. Oh, no. And I'm, I'm ashamed at, it, at the level to which I participate in surveilling women's bodies, just like the rest of society does. I was a professional classical ballet dancer, so I put myself on stage in front of in front of people who were looking at my body. That's the art form. So I'm not doing that anymore. I can't escape the forces in in this society and perhaps other parts of the world where we objectify women. We look at their bodies and for for whatever reason. So this piece is about my absent-minded habit, my conditioning that prompts me to do exactly the same thing. Until I'd read your piece, I'd never really thought about how I look at other women's bodies, or even if I did look at other women's bodies. And I'm still pondering that question of yours. I don't honestly have an answer. Would it have made a difference if the piece had said, or the piece you refer to had said that it was a, the woman had had a, a brain tumour? It's very... For me, it's a very difficult question to answer. I'm still not there. Yeah, I mean, if it was clear in the article, this is a, a New York Times article, mm -hmm. if she had had a brain tumor, I, I might have flipped back to see how her hair had grown back. Again, I would, I would flip back to look and see some evidence on her body of this reconstruction. And if it was her hair, you know, I might find myself judging, oh, yeah, she looks great with short hair or not with short hair or, oh, gee, again, there is this uh, observation and immediate judgment, whether it's just to see and, you know, be happy that she's healed or, oh, look, her hair's growing back or, oh, I can't tell that she's had a breast reconstruction at all. You know, why is it my business to even be curious about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it is our conditioning that makes us look, compels us to look and, and in a way critique, especially around women's bodies. And I um, regret the extent to which I find myself pulled into that same behavior. This piece has really, well, it's given me a lot to think about. And I was going to ask you, were there other points that you were trying to get across with this particular piece? Well, I wrote it with a certain sense of self-judgment. Mm -hmm. But by asking the question, does, does it show, do, do I manifest that I participated by my own gender surveillance? Can you tell by, mm -hmm. by looking at me or by interacting with me that I also do this? Because I think we mistakenly assume that it's really something that uh, heterosexual men might do to women, you know, yeah. and drive that type of tendency of, of 
objectification. But I wanted to admit, admit my own culpability in that behavior, but also ask, oh my goodness, does, does it show that I also do this? Like that's also like a secondary layer of shame in a way, because I'm concerned that people might know that I'm also objectifying women's bodies and I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a heterosexual woman and I'm also doing this to other women, regardless of their orientation. And so there's like, like a, a double layer of, of, wow, I'm really stuck in this pattern of behavior. And this was a way to speak truth about it from my own perspective. And I don't uh, know what to do about that behavior pattern from here, except sit with the idea that I'm stuck in it. It happens. I do it all the time. I dare say many of us do it all the time. And that for me, there's a layer of, oh my gosh, I have, I have some self-awareness around this behavior now, but I'm worried that other people will perceive that and judge me for it. This gave me such a lot to think about. First of all, I thought, gosh, aren't we shallow as a society? I suppose it's all about the sort of um, social media society that we've become that, you know, we look at bodies and we, we're very judgmental about them. And then I started to wonder, okay, Lorraine's probably right. I probably would look at another woman's body and, and be fairly judgmental about it if I, if I sat and thought about it. And then I thought, no, if that had been a man saying that, my old feminist instincts would really rise up and I'd be very angry about it. Mm -hmm. So is it different when a woman does it? Oh my goodness. I know. See, see what you've started. <laughs> that is such a, a fascinating, rich question. The sensibility I brought to this piece and the way I personally feel about it, which is just my own take, not projecting it onto anybody else, is that for me, it, it really, there really is no difference. It's, it's not my business to look at a body and judge it in any capacity. Mm -hmm yet I find myself doing it. it. For other people, maybe it, it, it is different. This piece takes a critical glance at societal behavior and the ways that I participate in that behavior. Fascinating stuff. Is there any, anything else that you wanted me to be thinking about when I read this piece? Oh, no. Thank you for letting me unpack it a little bit. It feels very vulnerable <laughs> to do so, but um, I... I'm, I'm very honored to have the chance to talk about it. And I think you, you've really uh, handled it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you, Lorraine. So would you give us the second reading, but perhaps a little bit differently, and we'll see what that different reading brings to the, the party, as it were. Sure. Complicit. The action shot taken in the studio opens an article about a female choreographer working on her next debut. Halfway through the piece, it's revealed that she's had multiple reconstruction surgeries. I immediately look back at the photo. Seeing no evidence, it made me wonder whether I'd be so eager to check her appearance had the woman survived a brain tumor. This is how I participate in my own gender surveillance. Does it show? Double take, one breast after another. In that second reading, I, I think we suspend the mystery a little bit longer because the word breast comes at, with the haiku at the end. It's not inserted in the text, so we don't know, actually, that it was a breast reconstruction surgery until the end. So as, as, as much as I like the, the, this braided format of the piece, I can also easily see it um, being 
a, stand, a, a more standard prose section followed by the haiku as well. You were right, though, when you put it on the page, the way you've written it for the page, for the for the journal, and obviously the way it's going to be submitted for, for the Touchstone Awards, the way you've formatted it does slow things down. And I really, mm-hmm. really enjoy that. But I tell you what we'll do. We'll leave it to our, our listeners. <laughs> and they can come back and hopefully they'll send uh, either me or you a bit of a message and tell us which version, when they hear it out loud, do they prefer. Thank you very much, Lorraine. Thanks for coming along. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And we'll see you next year. Wonderful. Thanks to Wendy, Norman, Reed and Lorraine for coming along to read to us. John, perhaps we'll hear you read your work soon. I do hope so. And thank you to you for coming along and listening to us today. It's great, as always, to have your company. Do email me and let me know what you thought of the episode. I'd love to hear from you. Next time, I'm joined by Alison Whipple for a mouth-watering podcast, which will introduce our next writing topic. Don't miss it. See you soon. But until then, keep writing. If I've missed anything out in the show notes, do email me and I'll sort it out. Ciao!